0: today i'm speaking with historian and classicist ian morris of stanford university ian has set himself the enormous task of making sense of macro history uh, that is trying to understand the big picture changes in human development and organization over tens or even hundreds of thousands of years
1: why we won't end up in the jetsons out of those three possibilities the um we go extinct, we turn into superhumans or things basically stay the same. I would say the one that we can bet the farm on, say, which is almost certain to happen, is is the first, we go extinct. Almost every species of plant and animal that's ever existed has gone extinct. So to think we're not going to go extinct, I mean, man, that takes superhuman levels of delusion, I think. So yeah, we are going to go extinct. But of course, just putting it like that, it then becomes a truism. It's not a very interesting or helpful observation to make. The the interesting bit would be asking, well, under what circumstances do we go extinct? And um, this is where I think the the first Prediction: the, the Go Extinct one and the third prediction turn into superhuman somethings. These two sort of start to merge together, I think. And the one definitely, I think the one that is so unlikely we can just dismiss it out of hand is the everything stays more or less the same and the future is like the Jetsons or something you know where everybody is the same people they are now but they've got their personal spaceships or even what struck me when I was quite a little kid um watching Star Trek you know this Star Trek started off in the late 60s um so it's a really old show as a little boy in the late 60s watching Star Trek and it just dawned on me um Yeah, this is exactly like the world that the producers of TV shows live in, except (laughs) they're now on a starship. And they've got like, um, and it's all of the assumptions of 1960s LA is baked into that show. So you've got the middle-aged white guys in charge. And then you've got the black woman, uh, Lieutenant Uhuru, answers the phones for him, basically. She's a communications expert. And then the technology expert, Asian guy. And it's like all of the assumptions of 1960s LA TV studios baked into this thing. And surely the, one thing you've got to be certain of, if you've got intergalactic travel, is that everything else about humanity does not stay the same when you get to this sort of, uh, get this sort of point. So I think you, you just give it a minute's thought. This stay basically the same scenario is just. Stay daggeringly unlikely one. And I think particularly when you start thinking yeah, more seriously about the kind of resource constraints that we face. And this is something people will often raise with any talk about sort of superhuman futures, that um, you know, we're heating up the world, we're poisoning the atmosphere and the oceans. There's a finite amount of fossil fuels out there, even if we weren't killing ourselves with them. All these things are happening to suggest that we can- business as usual is simply not going to be an option. If the world is going to continue and continue certainly on the sort of growth trends we've been seeing in anything like those ones in recent times, then we're talking about a very, very profound transformation of everything. So yeah, I, I, what I came down in why the West rules um, was one option, which I think is unfortunately a perfectly plausible option, is that the world continues to face all kinds of problems. Um, When you look back over the long run of history, one of the things you repeatedly see is every time there's been a major transformation, a major shift in the balance of wealth and power in the world, it's always been accompanied by massive amounts of violence. And living in a world that has nuclear weapons, I would say the number one threat to humanity, even more serious than climate change or anything else you might want to talk about, it's nuclear war. Um, We've had a 90% reduction in the number of nuclear warheads since the 1980s, but we've still probably got enough to fight World War II in a single day. And that's without even thinking about the radiation poisoning that we didn't get in World War II so much. This is a shocking, appalling potential to destroy humanity if we continue squabbling over our resources. So I think abrupt, sudden, violent extinction is a perfectly real possibility. I I tend to be optimistic about this. I think, judging from our previous record, we have been pretty good at solving problems, um, in the long run at least. So maybe we'll be able to avoid this. Um, If we avoid the abrupt short-term extinction, though, I think the only vaguely plausible scenario is that we do transform humanity, or somehow humanity gets transformed, into something utterly unlike what it's been in the last few thousand years chiefs in Sungir. The most extreme case is a place called Sungir, and Sungir is in this very unpromising-looking location. It's like 150 miles northeast of Moscow. This is a really, really cold and miserable place to live in now, during the Ice Age, Well, you can imagine how, how terrible it was during the Ice Age. And what we find there is this group of burials where the dead have been laid out in these graves, and then people have spent hours and hours and hours grinding up ochre, which is this um, naturally occurring iron oxide, which you, you grind it up and it produces this powder that allows you to stain things red. So they ground up tons and tons of ochre and put it in the graves. And then they bury these people in these elaborate costumes, um, where which we think were like animal skins, but sewn onto these animal skins are thousands of little beads that have been made by cutting up the bones and teeth of deer and snow leopards and other animals and grinding them into shape and drilling holes through them and of course you're doing all this without power drills you're doing all this by getting a stick and putting a little bit of abrasive on it and rubbing the stick between your hands until it grinds its way through this little bead and there are thousands of little beads like this on each of these bodies and along with them go um they are taken mammoth tusks. And then hundreds and hundreds of hours of labour have been put into straightening the mammoth tusks, making it so they're like 20 feet long straight rods. So it would have been so heavy, almost impossible to pick up. But then all these other smaller mammoth bone and tusk ornaments they've made. This is just astonishing what these people were doing. And it's the kind of thing where if instead of dating to 32,000 BC, it dated to 2000 BC, you would automatically say, oh, this is the burial of a great, powerful chief and all his family, because little kids are in there as well, with these extraordinary offerings with them as well, which, again, in later times you'd say, oh, well, this symbolises the fact that power and status are being passed down from the great chief, the proto-king, being passed down to his children, and you've got a dynasty here, but it's 32,000 years ago. (laughs) <laughs> this is something that sort of should not be happening. And of course, it's a real challenge to evolutionary theory to say, why do we, once in a blue moon, we get these bizarre cases of people who are basically hunter-gatherers producing stuff they should not be producing? They should not be living lives like this. And there is not complete agreement Um on this uh, in fact <laughs> understatement say there's not complete agreement there's wild disagreement <laughs> most archaeologists say well what it is is that actually as hunter-gatherers you sometimes get these super abundant niches of resources within a larger landscape where abund- resources are much scarcer and within these abundant resources niches the resources are of a kind that it's possible for a handful of people to begin to monopolise access to them and they're then able to turn this into to control over the resource flows and channeling resources to their own ends to make them something like chiefs. Um, And so for centuries or even millennia, you will get these chief-like people emerging. But because it's not farming, they're not able to keep scaling up and turning from chiefs into kings. But it does happen. And so this is probably the most popular theory. Then the other theory is no. What places like Sungia and some of the the Peruvian sites, uh, El Paraiso, some of these sites, what they actually show is that complex society has actually nothing to do with energy or um, the evolution of hierarchy. It was always possible for humans to live in complex societies if they'd wanted to do so. But they didn't want to do so. They chose to live free lives instead. And it's only in more recent times that some some colossal mistake gets made. And we start going down the path toward these complex societies um, where the the Orwell line of the future being somebody's jackboot on my throat forever and ever. That is what the future looked like. It's only quite recently that we make some terrible mistake and start going down this path. And all of the evolutionary theories are simply wrong. It's up to us to create the world we want to live in. And so you can imagine these arguments, they get quite political and so they get quite heated and nasty. But yet, there are these weird cases. Machine intelligence won't be held back by human constraints. One of the things was, you know, it always struck me, people constantly talk about artificial intelligence. And what exactly is artificial about it? Um, I I don't think a, a sort of fully conscious, whatever we might mean by that, fully conscious machine intelligence is going to think of itself as artificial. It's going to think of itself as itself. It's not artificial intelligence. It's different intelligence. And we are creating this different intelligence that may or may not want to share. It's being with us. Um, we, I think it's very difficult to know what the intentions and wishes of a different an intelligence that different from us are going to be. I mean, if you like, you're like horses trying to understand human intentionality. Which are, uh, my wife and I we have a couple of horses. They understand certain things that we're doing and thinking, and certain things that we want that they don't necessarily want. But their grasp of our overall presence in the world is pretty damn limited. And I think that is going to be the same for our grasp of non-biological intelligence and the non-biological intelligence's grasp of, of our intelligence. I think these are going to be radically different kinds of intelligences trying to communicate with each other. And I'm, I'm sure there will be some interest in merging them, but there's, I just think it seems highly likely that the non-biological intelligence... Um, Is not going to. That's not going to be his primary goal in life to make Ray Kurzweil live forever.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Um, I I think that this future is imaginable, but in my my, I think in order for it to happen, it would require a massive worldwide effort to suppress the alternative, because. Machine intelligence, by itself, trained in its own way, not merged with the human mind, I think, is just going to be way better. <laughs> it's going to be much faster. It's not going to be <laughs> held back by the constraints that face the the, the human brain, which is just, at, you know, at some point going to be a legacy piece of technology. And so, it, it, in order to make you know this sort of hybrid intelligence the the main species or the main kind of thinking that happens on Earth, you would have to basically prohibit this this other technology that is going to race ahead and end up being uh, really really superior. I think the 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 analogy that jumps to mind to me is you know, when people in the 19th century were trying to figure out how to design flying machines, they could have projected that the way we would do it is some sort of merger of birds with machines. That we mm, would produce yeah. a plane that is like a com- combination that's like somehow you've, you you stick the birds together and then like merge them with a machine and they flap their wings and that produces a plane. But no, the, the, the way that you make a combined plane-bird in our world is that you have a plane that flies and the bird inside the plane <laughs> at best. There is no... The, the merge trying to incorporate the, the Bird into the plane adds nothing and is just an extreme design constraint. And I think that is what is going to going to be trying to merge human brains with these, you know, uh, machine intelligences that can just improve so much faster as, as we improve the underlying technology and the algorithms and so on.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that the aircraft thing is a is a good example because yeah, it's, a, it's a basic scaling problem here. You can't just scale up a sparrow and turn it into <laughs> uh, a seven forty seven. It just does not work that way. And because they solve that problem um, in a, a little bit like the, the way that initially say when people are trying to design chess programs on computers that could beat humans they solve the problem by not attempting to make the computer think like a human they do it just by power um, by being able to run through all of the different possible combinations of the consequences of the move you make and run through all of them in a way a human can't do you're thinking about the game in an entirely different way just like when you strap wings onto an internal combustion engine you're thinking about flight in an entirely different way from a bird does and yeah I think that's a really good example. But you're, this talk, they're talking about you know, stopping, preventing artificial intelligence from developing. I think this is one place where thinking about the new forms of intelligence in an evolutionary kind of way, rather than as a problem in technology, can be kind of helpful. Um, Because we're already at the point where you can't just pull the plug out of the wall and switch the AI off. It doesn't work like that anymore. And we're going to get further and further down that path. This is going to become an unstoppable force. Uh, And it's a little bit like asking, well, how do you stop a biological evolutionary process, um, stop one species being replaced by a more intelligent competitor, um, uh, and yeah, this is, of course, what happened over and over again, the evolution of humanity, that um, more intelligent, bigger brain species of apes, then becoming more or less human, they replace one another. How would the less intelligent species have prevented that from happening? I mean it's just very difficult to imagine what exactly they 're going to do, and I think this is the situation we 're getting in now and I think even more than just saying it 's difficult to imagine it was impossible for the less intelligent species to imagine what it could conceivably do about this Neanderthals. Probably couldn't really conceive of the Homo sapiens threat, let alone come up with a coherent, coordinated response to it. What on earth makes us think we can conceive of how the threat, if it is a threat of the machine intelligence, is going to look like and what would be an adequate response to it? I suspect that we're kidding ourselves over this. AI from an evolutionary point of view.
0: You put your finger on something that over the last few weeks I've realized is just an absolutely key issue. I, I think the biggest difference between me and people who think that either you know improvements in machine intelligence are not such a big deal or that they're going to be you know modestly useful and obviously beneficial and that there's not many risks here is whether we think of these neural networks that we're building as a new being and a, and a new species or whether we think about them just as a new sort of consumer product. If you think it's a new piece of consumer software, then people freaking out about where this might ultimately take us just seems sort of nuts. It, it seems way over the top. But my instinct like yours is, is to view this from a biological and an evolutionary point of view. Um, and yeah, I, I get the impression that, you, yeah, you, you basically feel the same way. Well, why do you think it is that that biological and evolutionary perspective is the more appropriate lens on, on, on what's happening.
1: I guess I would say, you know, the only thing that currently exists in the world um, that you can make analogies from, although very imperfect ones, analogies from it to machine-based intelligence is you know, biological-based intelligence and the brains that animals have evolved across um, you know, billions of years. And... Um, you know, initially uh, through the most of the history of life on this planet there's nothing you really call a brain out there um, you start getting animals that have bodies that can move um, probably most biologists I think wouldn't want to call what some of these earliest creatures have They wouldn't really want to call it a brain they often I've heard people call it a ganglion like um, The front end of the body of many kinds of animals, say ants in the modern world, we've got example. Um, all the nerve endings from the body of an ant flow together at the front end of its body and its head. Um, there they form a kind of information exchange centre. But it's going on at such a crude level that calling it a brain is stretching the meaning of the word brain to the point that, you know, frankly, maybe even beyond the breaking point. Um, it takes you know, a particular kind of evolution of bigger and bigger brains to get to the point where animals start to be conscious of themselves. And consciousness of any kind is, in evolutionary terms, a relatively recent um, development, certainly only a few hundred million years old. Um, You start to get these brains develop that are conscious of the limits of the animal, because it's a, a selective pressure. A, an animal that is aware of where its own body ends and the rest of the world starts has an advantage over an animal that is not aware in that way. Um, it's much more able to develop the power to move itself around, control where it's going, conceptualise problems. Consciousness is an evolutionary adaption. And um, it's not, I mean, looked at in this way, at least it's not something that you know, God put his finger down to earth and created consciousness and mind and free will and all these kinds of things. It's something that evolved through a process of uncontrolled process of natural selection. And our kind of human consciousness is. In a way, it's no different from the consciousness of my dogs and cats, but it's at such a vastly more sophisticated level that in many ways it doesn't really bear comparison. But again, it emerged without anybody being in charge and consciously willing it into existence. Now, we are creating... We began creating these machine-based neural networks that relatively quickly are moving toward creating more of themselves. And in a sense, you can say we're already at that point. They are creating the more sophisticated versions of themselves as much as we are controlling this process. Of course, they're going to develop some sort of consciousness, although it may be nothing like the consciousness you get in biological brains, because it's not going to be biologically based. It's going to be silicon-based or whatever quantum kind of things they come up with. It's going to be different from ours, but It's going to develop some form of consciousness that might be a form of consciousness that we can't even understand anymore. A tree cannot understand your consciousness because it doesn't have a brain. Our brain may be as far from the the mind, or whatever you call it, of the machine-based intelligences as a tree is from us. Um, And again, I think thinking we're controlling this, this is wildly over-optimistic. The cyclical view of history. Hearing
0: about these examples of like civilizations, or I guess hunter-gatherer, you know c- civilizations um, flourishing in the past and then kind of collapsing for circumstantial reasons, it made me wonder. You know, maybe the cyclical view of history is something that we haven't talked enough about today, relative to to how plausible it is. That, for example, you could imagine a future goes that. Maybe we're broadly right in the long term, but you know we might go through another crash and uh, a resurgence again. For example, we could have a nuclear war and then you know uh, maybe all of this is delayed 100 years because it takes a long time for us to recover. and then maybe then then we go through some uh, some transition into the next stage of civilization through through improving technology. that, that seems that seems pretty plausible uh, to, to me and, and maybe that's something that this kind of up and down um, uh, pattern in history maybe makes makes seem more likely.
1: Yeah, I think this is something that's unavoidable if you look at long-term history, um, the, the ups and downs stuff, the troughs and crests in, in development. And so it's like history is cyclical and yet not cyclical. It's like the, um, you know, the troughs... Yeah, each new trough doesn't go as low as the last trough. Each new crest it kind of overtops all previous crests. So you've got a, a long term, say you've got a long term trend line that is trending upward, just with a huge amount of variation around that that trend line. And, but, but I think other things are going on as well in this sort of long run, um, sort of exponential growth process combined with the shorter term cyclical one. Another of the issues is that, you start off with very localised processes, tens of thousands of very localised experiments, in a, in a sense, being run around the planet. And as time has gone on, we've moved more and more toward having a single global experiment is running. And so you, know, you go to a place like Sungir, 32,000 BC, the, the place with the weird burials I was talking about a minute ago. Um, we have a few of them from Sungir and then they stop. And then we've got them other places and then they stop. Each individual place seems to have had a brief period when all the conditions came together to produce these wild kinds of societies. And then it stops and occasionally it'll come back later, but usually it doesn't. Um, And so that, that thing broke down there and it sort of never gets revived. As you go forward in time, it's like the societies are getting bigger and bigger. I mean, you know, like I was talking about with the, the stuff on war, we're creating these bigger and bigger societies. And you still would get these breakdowns. You have these, a big breakdown in the Eastern Mediterranean, about 1200 BCE. Um, and there you get the states over a region from Greece out through to Western Iran, down into Egypt. Um, well, Over most of that region, the states collapse, the population crashes as well, it takes centuries and centuries, but it then does rebound again and i think what we've seen as time has gone on is as the scale of the whole thing increases um you get multiple effects of this you wouldn't predict if you're just thinking about it in a linear kind of way so you know, one is um, that uh, the, the troughs when they come the collapses are so much more abrupt than they used to be and um, you know in terms of points on my development scale so much bigger and yet we bounce back from them so much faster um, because none of them have ever encompassed the whole planet I think there's always outside areas where you haven't had a collapse so you know even say something like the second world war the most Destructive thing we've ever had in, in human history, at least. Um, what does it do? It devastates large parts of Europe, East Asia, and yet within 50 years, you know, that, that's all been put behind us. We've moved on so much from there because a big part of the world, North America in particular, doesn't get devastated by it. Now you know, we're running up against these new thresholds. It's like if we, we've got the one experiment going, the global one, if we don't get it right at the first attempt, we get a profound crash with nowhere in the world left outside it in order to step in in the future and and fix things for us again. And this, um, while I do remain optimistic, I do think we're going to see this revolutionary transformation. Um, You're a little bit stupid if you don't worry about the downside. The rate of increase in the economy has been increasing.
0: For me, the the key fact that I remember just really striking me in the head uh, back in 2008 or 2009, when when I first encountered it, is it's not just that you know the economy or like human influence has been growing over time, but rather that the rate of increase has been increasing. So there was this long period when we were hunter gatherers, where the you know the annual rate of growth in you know human population or human technology per year was negligible, you know 0.01% or something incredibly small, and then you get to the farming era. When you get a really significant, inc- like it's it's glacial change from our point of view, but uh, very very much faster change than than what was going on before during during the hunter gatherer era, I guess because people are in cities, there's like more ability to record knowledge, there's more people uh, actually kind of have who have the the slack to do some research and come up with new ideas and figure out new ways of doing things. So so the growth rate increases a lot once we have settled agriculture and cities and empires and so on. And then in 1700, 1800, it, it steps up again by, by a really big factor, three or three or ten or something like that, to, to the modern world where we're kind of used to the idea that technology is changing within people's lifetimes, that by the time they die, things might look really quite different than than they were when, when they were born, which definitely wasn't the case before the industrial era. So if, if you predict forward, you don't just have to think about like just growth continuing but also the potential that we'll get a, a third step change where the rate of growth will increase compared to the industrial era so so earlier i said that if the economy grew 3.5% for 100 years then the economy would end up 30 fold larger uh, each each century but if we go through a third phase shift like you're describing and average growth rates triple to 10.5% a year then over the the following 100 years after that then we end up with a global economy that's 22,000 times larger than it was when it started <laughs> which is a totally wide impact that is is clearly beyond our ability to visualize uh, except that the world would be obviously be uh, really unfamiliar to to say the least yeah do, do you have any reaction to 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 that
1: yeah well, I, again yeah, these sort of numbers it's very difficult to imagine what this means for us. But I think you know, the, the basic premise of what you're saying does seem to be borne out by the historical record. And um, I, when I started writing my Why the West Rules book in the late 2000s, um, it dawned on me pretty quickly that one reason why historians often hadn't seen um, the, the just how long-term you need to look, they hadn't grasped that you really have got to look at thousands and thousands of years to see what's going on, is that if you think linearly about long term change you just you can 't see it happening, and so when I was drawing graphs of my social development scores for eastern and Western societies, if I just plotted it on a, a linear linear scale with years along the bottom of the graph and then points on the, um, the the index on the vertical axis, basically nothing happens on that graph until you get to about 1800 when suddenly the lines leap off the bottom where they being, look like they're zero the whole time up to 200 years ago. And they go up almost 90 degree turn, go, go straight up. If you plotted it instead on a log linear graph with, again, dates along the bottom presented in the usual way, but on the vertical axis now you've got kind of tenfold increments in the development and scores um If you plot it that way, then you see that, oh, going back for thousands of years, actually development was rising exponentially. Just the exponent was really small. So it just took a very, very long time for anything to happen. And um, the the book I'm working on now is going to be focusing much more on the early periods. And I realised if you want to go back millions of years and look at these phenomena, you've really got to draw it on a log-log graph where both axes (laughs) are increasingly tenfold increments. And that makes it really obvious, like what you were just saying, It's not only that growth has been increasing exponentially, it's that the exponent has been growing as well. So it's not not just that we're accelerating, but the rate at which we're accelerating is itself accelerating. So whether that is going to give us a world where we see the the economy is 23,000 times bigger than now, 100 years from now, or not... Um, This is the sort of way we've got to think about it, that um, just, I think, all of our preconceptions about how the world works are going to be swept away just as abruptly as they were during the agricultural revolution and just as abruptly as they were during the industrial revolution.